are here at 11FS headquarters in London. We work for episode 20 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you the fallout from Segwit2x not happening and the surge in Bitcoin Cash. Updates on the $160 million parity wallet hack, more fantastic interviews, and of course, happy birthday to at Colin G. Platt. On to the news. Mr. Colin G. Platt, um, my co-host, you're back again. Happy birthday for yesterday. How are you, sir? Doing fantastic, thanks. Enjoying the beaches in sunny Australia. Enjoying the beaches with party hats? Were there, were there uh, drinks? What, what happened? Uh, there, there were drinks, but I, I still had an eight-month-old child, so it, it wasn't an all-nighter. Oh, well, I mean, it, it could have been an all-nighter if you were following the blockchain news, because it has been an insane week. Uh, we've got to start with the death of Segwit2, um, and what happened next. I mean, this is probably the story this week. I mean, even Fortune.com were covering this story with a with a headline that says bitcoin is in wild upheaval after the cancellation of the segwit 2x fork would you describe it as wild upheaval colin wild and upheaval would definitely be good good words to put in there um i mean watching the story over the past week has definitely made me feel at least a week older um i I think the best way to really describe it is very much like a star wars saga um and i think we're back at like the empire striking back somewhere um so what we had a while ago um and we talked about this on the show and i think we even talked about how it all fell apart as late as last week um essentially we go to we go to record on tuesdays and i wake simon up very early on tuesday mornings to come in and do this he's a bastard uh in the evening of, of tuesday last week on uh, the 7th Segwit um, or segregated witness 2x would increase the block size to twice the size, hence the 2x, was receiving a lot of negative feedback. And they decided, right, this is not going to go ahead. This is not going to happen. It was supported by companies like um, Digital Currency Group, which owns Coindesk, um, amongst many other things. They brought together a lot of companies they'd invested in and said, let's try to force this segregated witness thing through and also appease the people that wanted bigger block sizes. Um, of course, bigger block sizes was one of the contentions that made uh, Bitcoin Cash, which has an eight megabyte block size, um, happen in August this last year. So uh, they called it off. It's not going to happen. We're not getting to the 2X. We did get segregated witness and they can't renege on that. Right after this happened, there was a lot of euphoria. The, the price of Bitcoin went from $7,000, $7,200 up to nearly uh, $7,900. And almost as quickly, it dropped back down to about $5,400. It's it rebounded a bit, uh, currently looking at about 6500 But the real big story here was around Bitcoin Cash. I think it was, Colin. I think what we saw is just the pure moment of drama. I just want to step back through everything you covered there because I want to unpack it. Let's go step by step. So first of all, we see this post on the Linux.org forums about uh, kind of the key team behind the Segwit2 fork saying, you know what? We're not going to do it. They blinked. Uh, They thought it was going to split the community too much. It could have been really damaging to the Bitcoin project, and they're just not going to do it. And I remember when this happened and news was being passed around the office, our own Jason Bates uh, heard us talking about it, walked into the office and just went, fuck. (laughs) I mean, it was just an incredible amount of shock. And then, of course, because the euphoria, as you said, hit the price of Bitcoin then skyrockets, but something something then happened. Uh, and it looked like Bitcoin was falling, but if you looked 
uh, back a couple of months, remember we were talking about Bitcoin forking in, what was it, uh, July time? And of course, that was when Bitcoin forked into two the first time and we created Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash or BTC and BCH as they're known. So what happened with Bitcoin Cash, Colin? So Bitcoin Cash, as we said, we talked about it, eight, eight megabyte blocks came out in early August. Um, essentially, if you had a Bitcoin before the split, um, or this airdrop as they called it, um, you also had a Bitcoin Cash. So you kept your original Bitcoin, you have a new one. Um, there was an excellent blog post that uh, we put together. Uh, shameless plug here. Uh, thank you very much, Laura, for doing the hard work on that um, back in August. It explains exactly how that works. So if you're curious and you held Bitcoin and haven't figured this part out, go back and read through that. Um, but essentially, uh, when it first came out, it was worth somewhere around $400. Um, the idea was, let's put all of our transactions in, increase the block size so we can carry everything. Um, right now, in, in Bitcoin, uh, not Bitcoin Cash, we have a one megabyte block size, which means every 10 minutes, or on average, um, about seven transactions a second can come through uh, over the course of that 10 minutes. And Bitcoin Cash just multiplied that by eight um, because they noticed that the the blocks were getting full and people were having to pay more money to get their transactions confirmed or they just weren't confirming at all. Um, this was supported very notably um, by a lot of the, the big miners uh, of Bitcoin based in China, as well as a gentleman named Roger Veer, who was a, a very early Bitcoin adopter involved in things like Mt. Gox, um, which we'll talk about actually later in the show, believe it or not. Um, if we haven't had enough drama, they were supporting putting this thing in. It it, it eventually took off. Uh, price bounded somewhere between a hundred dollars and six hundred, seven hundred dollars uh, until very recently, um, when Segwit two X fell apart. A lot of people who were pushing this uh, became frustrated with Bitcoin and said, "Right, if you can't scale the main Bitcoin, we're leaving." We're going to Bitcoin Cash. We've already got this. We'll just sell our Bitcoin and buy these. Um, very notably, Roger Veer, who I mentioned, um, early investor, has lots of Bitcoins, had lots of Bitcoins, um, publicly said, I'm selling all my Bitcoins and I'm moving into Bitcoin Cash. Um, I, I, was, I bought into this idea in 2010, 2011, because I wanted this. Yeah, people wanted peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, didn't they? They wanted this ability to have the new type of internet cash, internet money, replace paper money with digital money. They didn't want digital gold, although some people did. And we're seeing the kind of split down the middle now between people who like this new investable asset class that is hard to move, slow, but keeps its value, versus the people who want to see peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. And those different different interest groups are pulling Bitcoin in different directions. And what we have now is a cryptocurrency that's heritage goes all the way back to you know, kind of 2008, but is in two, could find itself splitting even more, but has a combined market cap and a combined price that seems to keep raising. So people may look at Bitcoin core and see loss. They may see Bitcoin cash and see growth. But if you were to just have held both of those coins from the beginning, you're still in pretty good shape right now, but it's getting more and more complex as people start to disagree with each other about what the future is. And this Bitcoin cash stuff uh, kind of goes back to the idea that, yes, we want it to be scalable. Yes, we want it to happen faster. 
But you've got to keep in mind that the way Bitcoin validates its transactions is the use of miners. And the miners are major, major players in the ecosystem. Unlike banking, where banks hold your money and validate the transactions themselves, this is a case where pretty much anybody can hold the money by operating a full node, or or at least hold a record of who holds the money and and having a wallet and holding onto the money themselves. But the people who validate the transactions have to be miners, and that requires a lot more effort and energy. So they that tends to have concentrated to power into different stakeholder groups. So now you've kind of got the, the wallet providers, you've got the people operating the full nodes, and then you've got the miners, and then the investors. Everybody wants something different from this Bitcoin thing. They're all facing off with each other. It's almost like they're sitting around a mafioso table trying to agree with each other what the future should be. And we got the New York agreement earlier this year for, for how the future was going to go, how we were going to uh, upgrade. And yes, there was going to be a SegWit and then there was going to be SegWit 2X. Now that hasn't happened. A lot of people are feeling kind of a bit upset and moving their money all over the place, seeing wild volatility and swings in in prices. But also, let's not forget that the miners are jumping around as well. So that really impacts the price um, dynamics here, Colin. Yeah, and there's there's some complicated things that we won't get into, but essentially when this thing was all happening, Bitcoin Cash, uh, not Bitcoin, but Bitcoin Cash had scheduled another upgrade inside of it, um, dealing with the, how it's actually mined in, in something called the difficulty. So as we said, on average, the, the block should come about every 10 minutes. It, that wasn't happening in Bitcoin Cash because miners were arbitraging the two chains um, or trying to make the most money out of whichever one, so they're switching back and forth. Actually, on, on the 14th or the night of the 13th, if, if you're in the United States, um, they, they underwent this upgrade. So the, the price spiked right before this upgrade. Upgrade launched in as SegWit 2X fell apart. So it was kind of this perfect storm of um, prices going up and down. Bitcoin cash price went from, as we said, um, about a week ago, somewhere in the realm of, of $600 to I, I saw a cap at $2,800 uh, at one point on wow. Sunday night. It's all over the place. Um, and now we have this new thing that's come up. I don't really know where it's going to go, but it doesn't seem sustainable. And the volatility is all over the shop. Never a dull day. Whilst we are on the subject of drama, Colin, uh, the next one, uh, stories covered by a lot of outlets. Uh, one here from Coindesk is there's a hard fork required to release frozen parity funds and ICO funds are on millions frozen in parity wallets. So it looks like the parity wallet, so this is the wallet where you would put potentially uh, your ETH. So let's say you've done really well on ETH and you've got 100 ETH and you want to store that in a wallet. You stick it in the parity wallet. You could stick it in the MyEther wallet, the Ledger wallet, the Trezor wallet. There's a, there's a whole bunch of places that will hold your ETH or you can hold it on an exchange. So let's say you've got 100 ETH, which today is around $315,000. Well, it looks like it looks like they've had a little bit of a problem and that money's now stuck and you can't get it out. So uh, what happened here, Colin? All right. So um, we're, we're in November 2017. Record this because I'm sure we're going to have to play it again. The Parity client, um, not only the wallet, but the client itself is an implementation that basically describes how the Ethereum blockchain works. There are two kind of leading ones. Um, Parity is the smaller of those two leading ones. The, the main one is called Geth, or the Go Ethereum client. It's the original one maintained by the Ethereum Foundation when it set everything up back in 2015 uh, and formally went went live. Um, Parity was 
developed by one of the developers who was involved there, um, a gentleman named Gavin Woods, um, runs a company called uh, the Parity Group, I believe. Um, so it was Parity, believe it or not, when we talk about all this drama, it's Parity I-T-Y, not O-D-Y. Um, I know I'm American and they sound very similar. So what happened essentially uh, back in July um, was we had these things called multi-signature accounts, which meant um, kind of like a countersign check. You need to have multiple passwords to come in to release your money. Um, they had these. Somebody found a, a backdoor into this thing and was sucking money out of a lot of ICOs. Uh, somebody's come back, and what they, they found out is um, there is something that has a code that describes how money should be held in a wallet on Parity. Um, the parity wallet. As you said, there's lots of different ways to do it. They had one. Um, and they, they deleted a bunch of the code for everybody. Uh, they did something called a suicide. Mm-hmm. It was done by this figure who calls themselves DevOps199. Which, um, by the way, what a great username, DevOps199. Just you, that's, a, that's a great username. I'm now picturing uh, some goth teenager somewhere uh, who's suicided their own code because they just can't deal. Um, and in so doing, has locked up nearly $160 million worth of Ether. Um, do, do you think, I mean, do we know if this is malicious or if, if it is accidental, as a lot of media outlets are saying? Well, they, they claimed it was accidental. Um, when they announced it, they kind of came out and said, oh, no, um, I've done this. I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to learn it and uh, accidentally did this command and everything blew up. Uh, Am I going to go to jail? Honestly, it, it feels like DevOps 199 feels like a standard thing of like somebody that worked at a bank that was trying to like play around with Ethereum or, or probably <laughs> somebody that worked at like PricewaterhouseCooper in their blockchain department. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, it, 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 sounds, it sounds too good to be true. Um, but yeah, they locked up, what was it, $160 million worth of, of ETH? Um, included in the actual company, um, the parity group, Kevin Wood, had launched an ICO um, for a project they were working on. Um, a lot of that money is now locked up in there and nobody can get it out. And nobody really knows what to do. That's just crazy, isn't it? And you can imagine having money locked in a box that you can't get at. It's like you can see it. You know it's there. It's yours, but you can't get it. Uh, and what happens now is the Parity team, it looks like, have just put out a statement uh, saying that they're going to need their own hard fork or they're looking at many other options and they're looking at ways to get things done. But they might wait for the next scheduled hard fork. Uh, so, you know, you've got to wait till next year till you can get your money it is, is looking like. And it certainly looks like uh, permissionless block chains are having some almighty teething problems with you know real money sitting on the line as this happens but i was talking to an internet pioneer who was there in the sort of uh, early late 80s early 90s looking at the development of some of the protocols and some of the bodies like ICANN and w3c and many others saying all of this sounds mighty mighty familiar um Colin, I'm going to move us on to your favorite story of the week. I think whilst we're saving the drama for the llama, there's one that we couldn't save. This story has has just the best comeback ever. The former Bitcoin king that was bankrupt could get rich again. So this one's all about Mt. Gox. Colin, go. Oh, man, this is fantastic. So Mark Carpellis, who was the CEO of Mt. Gox or MT Gox, um, which was for um, a time the largest Bitcoin exchange until its um, untimely demise in 2014 when it went into administration. This is a company based in Japan. It was the first Bitcoin exchange. So woohoo. Um, so essentially what happened is um, 
at the time, uh, Bitcoin spiked as people could no longer get their money out. Um, they didn't realize they couldn't get their money out because of some computer program uh, problems, as they had claimed, including we talked about him earlier in the show. Roger Ver coming in and saying, don't worry, everything's fine. Mark Carpellis very strangely had, um, uh, let's say, placed the money outside of the exchange that may have not been his um, to buy himself uh, included uh, a $31,000 bed or something to that, that tune. Um, when they finally did decide they were bankrupt uh, and went to a Japanese court for bankruptcy protections, um, Bitcoin price was about $480 or so. Um, so everybody who had Bitcoin in this exchange said, okay, well, we're going to take you to court. We're going to try to get our money back, as happens with a, with a default like these things. And um, the court said in Japanese yen, because we're in Japan here, the equivalent of $485 times the number of Bitcoin you had in there will be uh, what we pay you out. Obviously, today, um, as this Japanese court has found all these things, they did all kinds of research, found the money, found the keys, Carpellis handed them over, he was in jail for a while, um, they said, okay, great, we can now pay everybody back the equivalent of $485 times the number of Bitcoins you had in there. And I think um, in total that came out to be about 2 or $3 billion worth of Bitcoin, um, as it currently stands. Um, but when you uh, take a look at the price and how it's accumulated, Mark Carpellis, after paying off all the creditors and all these other things, stands to keep about what, $859 billion with the current price of Bitcoin. So good on you, mate. Um, steal people's money and you're nearly a billionaire. Wow. I mean, talk about a comeback. Steal people's – well, not – I guess steal it, but it, it was probably gross negligence and lose people's money and, and hold, manage to hold on to some of it and have it all go horribly wrong. Uh, this is like something – some Bond villain-esque comeback of, of kind of like you think he's down and out and he's he's coming back. And like I'm, I'm trying to think of better comebacks. I mean, being a Liverpool fan, I was thinking about the Champions Champions League in 2005 when they were three 0 down and came back to three all and then won it on penalties and uh, but I don't know if you have if you've got a favourite comeback a better comeback oh it's definitely France New Zealand 1999 semi World Cup rugby well you gotta you gotta upvote that one and and talk about your comebacks and I, I guess if you want more transparency than what's going on with these comebacks Colin you gotta have that system of upvoting and downvoting uh, and that's why we're proud that Zilla is a sponsor of blockchain insider and they're a new ico marketplace kind of app that's kind of like a mix between amazon and reddit for icos you can browse icos upvote and downvote them so good ones rise to the top and if you like an ico you'll be able to participate using various tokens and various credit card with one click you can pre-register for the limited zilla beta at zla.io all right, Colin, next story. Uh, we've got one here from Reuters. Uh, top banks and R3 build a blockchain-based payment system. Colin, what's going on here? Well, uh, so R3, our good friends over there, have um, come together with several of their members and decided, right, we're going to use this cool new technology and we're going to look at how you set up a payment system. Um, we've heard about other things, including um, JP Morgan, not so long ago, we talked about using Quorum. R3 has figured out how to use their technology and do something similar. Of course, their technology was purposely built for these types of things, so it is a really interesting uh, thing to see it come forward. We've seen other other projects out there like Utility Settlement Coin. Everybody really wants to kind of get into a very simple product, which is how do I, as one bank, pay you as another bank through this cool DLT technology? What kind of benefits do I get outside of it? So it's fantastic to see that they've got 22 banks actually looking at bringing something 
out of the ground to work on this project that they'd originally tried to solve and eventually bring it bring it to fruition. I think there's been an awful lot of cynicism from the uh, permissionless blockchain space or the crypto asset space to, to what's been going on in, in enterprise uh, with groups like Digital Asset Holdings, IBM, R3 and others. Uh, whereas when you look at something like this and you say, hang on a minute, 22 banks have really started moving on this payments initiative, that that brings significant market momentum behind a project. And there was an interesting nugget in here that said uh, they've designed it to be ready for when central banks issue their own digital currencies so it seems to me that they're envisioning a world in which uh, systems uh, that help move money around the world for global financial services would start to rely on central banks having the ability to interact with blockchain or dlt in some way Uh, interesting thoughts there colin well i think um at the end of the day when you're dealing with payments it always kind of comes back to who's going to stand behind this if all the banks fall and that's that is the goal of central banks um, so you really need them to be on board with it. Um, R3 has been very fortunate. They've started to talk more and more with regulators uh, in Europe and the US and Asia. And uh, hopefully there'll be some traction. I, one of their members, I believe, is uh, Monetary Authority in Singapore, um, obviously the central bank and regulator in Singapore. Um, so one could see that kind of come to fruition quite quickly. I think they also have um, HKMA on there, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. Um, but lots of these other banks are trying to figure out if it makes sense, um, Places like the ECB, um, they worked with Canada not so long ago, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Japan. Somebody needs to stand behind this and say, yep, okay, for these limited cases, we as a central bank are willing to take the risk on DLT with all these things said and done. That's really what's going to be the the big stepping stone to eventually have a fiat um, DLT currency. You mentioned uh, Singapore's Monetary Authority and you mentioned the uh, Hong Kong Monetary Authority. Of course, they announced recently that they were in partnership around uh, trade finance and DLT um, and how trade is is really, really important to them. Uh, R3 have talked a lot about uh, their partnerships with uh, TradeIX, who are coming up on the show later today as well, uh, and also uh, the several other initiatives around blockchain and DLT with Bolero. It seems to me like that and the ability to move payments on the back of it. So if I'm managing my global supply chain, I'm moving goods around the world, I can execute a payment directly with a central bank, we start to get to this position where my credit risk and my settlement risk, in other words, the risk that somebody won't deliver my goods or the risk that um, I'll pay somebody and and never get them or um, that I'll deliver something and never get paid seems to seems to be mitigated quite a bit when you've got uh, when you've got those capabilities. But Time's only going to tell if, if that's going to happen. Alrighty, so there was a ton of stories we didn't have time to cover this week, Colin. Uh, I think my favorite uh, is one on Coindesk where pop star Bjork is going to accept cryptocurrency payments for her new album. I'd, if I could upvote that on ZLA.io, I definitely would. I don't know about you. Certainly for Bjork. Um, Colin, I, I think we need to think about who else needs to start accepting cryptocurrencies. Who, I, I, I'm surprised that uh, Ghostface Killer or Jamie Foxx haven't started doing that with their ICO pumping lately. Um, there's one on PR Newswire where uh, Grayscale Capital, uh, Grayscale Investments, sorry, have announced they're launching a Zcash investment trust. So Zcash seems to be uh, maturing as an instrument. Of course, um, Zcash are part of the Quorum group of technologies with the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and what JP Morgan are up to. 
there's uh, Cryogen talking about a pre-ICO, uh, cryogen.me. This is this is a, a massive downvote on Zilla. Um, these guys actually want to have a token so you can cryogenically freeze yourself. My big question is, what happens if you run out of tokens or the blockchain forks? <laughs> yeah, if the blockchain forks, then only half of you gets to survive. You'll be like something from Future Army. You'll just be a talking head, which is essentially what we are on this show. So, uh, and last story, um, one on Coindesk, uh, the the saying. I think this was Jerry Brito from CoinCenter who wrote this one, saying that SAFT uh, SAFT is a symptom of regulatory uncertainty. So this is kind of analysis on how Filecoin and others have managed to sort of hack their way into the US regulatory system uh, by doing some sort of legal jujitsu. But basically, that is suboptimal and we need more regulatory certainty. And I think uh, jurisdictions like Switzerland and like Singapore and, and possibly Gibraltar have started to take a lead on that. Uh, I certainly hope we see more from jurisdictions like the UK or Europe uh, to look at how you can provide some more regulatory certainty, but there are hard questions to answer before you do that. Um, right, so listeners, don't forget, you can let us know what you think about any of these stories we've covered or the ones we haven't covered on Twitter at Chain Insider. Uh, share your thoughts at Colin G. Platt or just wish him a happy birthday uh, or at S.Y. Taylor if you want to pick up with us about anything that we've said on today's show or drop us an email at podcast at 11fs.com if you want to be on the show if you've got a project you want to talk about remember 11fs the company that brings you this podcast or a challenger agency who help banks asset managers and anybody with a challenge in blockchain or dlt achieve more uh, unless you're mark kerpels in which case we, we we probably just sit back and admire your ability to land on your feet all right so uh let's get on with some interviews today colin um first i spoke to advisor, author, speaker, and uh, I think works at the MIT Media Labs cryptocurrency project, Michael Casey. Well, um, Michael, uh, thank you for being with us on Blockchain Insider. I appreciate you coming to join the show. So, Mr. Michael Casey, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, how you got interested in the blockchain space, sir? Yeah, so, I mean, these these questions are always a good ones to start off with, right? So, what, what sort of stone did you kick your foot on that got you uh, going down the rabbit hole? So, there's two metaphors that I'll mix right there. Um, Look, I'm a former journalist, was uh, a long time at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones um, and li- lived in Argentina. Uh, so that was a kind of important piece of this story where I recognized the dysfunction of financial systems. I think if you're going to understand, I think Foucault said if you want to understand uh, normality, you should understand madness first. And uh, Argentina is uh, sort of like the personification or the, the nationalization of madness in a financial sense. So I think I really understood some of the dysfunction in finance and sort of start to think hard about how some of these core issues of trust became a problem. I didn't know what I was thinking about. And then when I discovered Bitcoin, um, writing about it, I, like many people, thought the whole thing was absurd. Why would you want to uh, own something that wasn't backed by a government, as is the line that we always hear? I uh, wrote a fairly ordinary column for the journal about sort of tulips and things and this is all a bubble sounds familiar right i, I, I can say this it is it's a cycle here that people go through it, it's a bubble there's something to do with tulips and then five years later people kind of go hang holy, on a second holy crap what was that yeah so so um so that's where i was at and and i was you know, didn't make an, enough of too much of a fool of myself thankfully that i was called in by some folks and said hey i think you're getting some of it but you're really missing the the uh, the the forest for the trees so let's have a chat about it and it was guys like barry silver and Jeremy Allaire and a few others at that stage were trying to sort of get 
interested and I realized that th- these people were real serious investors. There was a number of uh, VCs in this meeting and we had a dinner with a bunch of journalists and that's when the penny dropped. It was just, oh, wow, we're talking about something profound here. It's not just this alternative currency thing. Uh, there is a mechanism behind it for how we resolve this core problem of trust. And then all of the little pieces of my life started coming together and I just realized this was a big deal. And um, so that was it. I, I really wanted to write about it. I convinced um, against their better judgment to my editors to let me write at least in an online blog sense with Paul Vineyard and I uh, writing the bit beat. Um, went to a few conferences um, and then decided that it was just too big a deal to not want to write a book about. So he and I uh, wrote The Age of Cryptocurrency. Uh, in the process of doing that, I realized that I think this is the most important transformation for um, our digital economic infrastructure since the internet. And why would you stick around in a industry that, let's face it, is struggling, I'm talking about news, uh, when I could, in fact, maybe get in on the ground floor of this big idea. Um, I wasn't, I'm just turned 50. So I wasn't going to go and join some startup and, uh, you know, launch my dream company. So I didn't think how I was going to do this. Brian Ford, who was then the director of the MIT Digital Currency Initiative said, hey, why don't you just come up and sort of be a remote employee, live out of New York, come up every now and then to MIT uh, and help us launch the Digital Currency Initiative and get involved in all the stuff you're interested in there. And so that was too good an option to, to, to pass up. Um, MIT being a fairly uh, appealing place to work, um, and I um, I took it up. So I've been doing that ever since. I then I've since then uh, got involved in, with CoinDesk, where I'm the chairman of their advisory board, where I'm writing a regular column. Uh, but most of the time, I'm still focused on research, largely around the social impact of blockchain applications and exploring a range of wacky ideas on how we can uh, make a difference in the world if we use this technology to uh, to grapple with some of the core problems that we face. So that's it. So I remember meeting you, Michael, in New York, I think February 2016. I think we may have bumped into each other a couple of times before that, consensus 2015 maybe. Uh, and one of the things you described as being sort of your role was making the subject make sense for everybody else, not just the nerds, and, and really kind of bringing it into the land of both politicians, but but also just you, you and me, um, people who uh, deal with this day to day. Where do you think we're at in that evolution from like it's, it's this crazy idea from the nerds in the corner to this is something that people are taking seriously? Where are we at in that, in that cycle and will, will, will people ever take it seriously? This, this cryptocurrency, crypto asset, non-DLT blockchain space, maybe separate those two as well. Okay. I uh, will definitely think that we are going to get there uh, because all I've seen, and I think you'd probably concur uh, ever since I got involved in it, is this not exactly exponential, but fairly rapid uh, accumulation or widening of the tent of the, all the different entities that are interested in it. Um, you know, I, I like think consensus where we did meet uh, the first time is a pretty good barometer of this. I think it went from 500 people to 2,000 people to 6,000 with 10,000 more online and uh, you know, and, and this 97 different countries and multiple different industries. Um, you know, I've just been come to you now from a, a gathering organized by the Center for Transport and Logistics at MIT with all these different major companies to talk about blockchains and supply chain, which is a hot topic right now. And I was impressed by the level of, of uh, familiarity, not, not always full grasping of the story, but certainly familiarity with the concepts. Uh, amongst these people. So I think we're getting there. Um, 
the thing that's the challenge is that it's like when you, you know, you, you sort of discover what you, you realize you don't know something, then you discover stuff you think you know, then you discover what you really don't know. And I don't think anybody, to be honest, and this is, I mean this quite seriously, really understands this technology. I mean, going right down to the best cryptographers working on it, because it is not just a technical phenomenon. It is not just the capacity to string together information into a hash and figure out ways through a Merkle tree to make it all contain in some string, but it is also all of these social phenomena. It is whether or not we can come together and agree on a consensus mechanism and uh, to, to then establish a fact around which we can, you know, coordinate together. So those there's legal issues, there's regulatory issues, there's, there's you know, cultural issues. There's, there's a whole range of different phenomena here that need to come together to make all this stuff work. So understanding how it works and then what its implications are, how disruptive it may or may not be, that's a, that's a life's work. And so I'm, I'm kind of happy to be there because I think I'll yeah. be gainfully employed for a while. But I do think that the learning curve is a collective ex- exercise that everybody is on. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and that's, I think, a really important message to make. If we just think that it's just the Silicon Valley boys who are going to drive this, We'll create a doomsday machine. Yeah, it's it's we're learning as we go. We are absolutely learning as we go. And you kind of touched on on the the trinity there of things that I've often described of being like it's a it's part kind of social reimagining how we how we deal with each other and deal with being governed and governing. It's part economic reimagining and we how we deal with money, how we deal with value, and how we deal with trust from from an economic standpoint. And then outside of that, it's technology. And technology is only at, at most one third it if that and and the technology is really combined of lots of technologies that already existed reimagined through kind of a social and economic lens and people very rarely get those three and when you talk about supply chain at, at MIT that seems to be the one area where there's the most pressing need with globalization under pressure with food stocks under pressure with real needs to to solve problems and start to relocalize manufacturing to uh, make those processes more efficient people could see real value and changing the business model, moving away from a global supply chain um, and, and kind of getting to how do I do additive manufacturing? How do I um, reimagine using local manufacturers and how do I support local economies in, in kind of doing that? You, you start to get into some interesting questions with, with, without doubt. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing that's interesting about the supply chain phenomenon is that it is, it is being impacted not only by blockchain technology, but rather by as much by all these other things. You just mentioned additive printing, but there's, you know, there's the IoT phenomenon. There is the fact that we have these decentralizing forces in the global economy as it is that are pushing us out to the edges and creating opportunities as well as these phenomenal problems, sustainability, climate change, everything else, all of which needs coordination and cooperation in some way to resolve. We will not fix them in siloed settings. We need to collaborate. So we're creating this decentralized phenomena that inherently can't be managed by centralized trust architectures. You can't put one single company in between all of the self-driving cars who are going to talk to each other because no one's going to trust each other. You need to decentralize the trust architecture. So I think that blockchain becomes this enabling factor to, to sort of address these broad trust, to overcome the big trust barriers that are you know, impeding our ability to get where everything else is headed. 
Um, it makes sense. Uh, so where do you centralize world trade? Where do you send, you know, which country do you centralize it around? Which company do you centralize it around? Where do you centralize, as you say, self-driving cars? Do, do you centralize that in China? Well, the USA is not going to like it. Do you centralize it in the USA? Well, the USA might like it, but China might not. So then the USA companies can't sell into China. So, so you kind of get these challenges and the answer always was centralized and centralization ha- probably ha- is the more efficient technological answer. But for, for techies for so long to be saying, but we can solve new problems of economics and new problems of, of social construct if we think differently about how we how we architect that. It's, it's but like there's also the challenge then that comes, which is we don't agree. Like the irony of a technology that's all about consensus is we can't come to consensus about which one to use. We're in this Cambrian explosion phase. Like reflect on some of the different perspectives on where Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus all of these like different uh, exotic ones that are coming out of the woodwork are, are kind of going well Cambrian explosion is an excellent metaphor because um, you know it, which species is going to sort of evolve to be the dominant one is really the actual question here and I think the only way to, to look at upon look look upon it is to see it as a kind of a biological complex system uh, just as really economies always have I mean we the, 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 the beauty of you know Adam Smith's model the beauty of, of you know what we call democracy you know it is this idea that um, if you you know just open up the system to as much input as everything else eventually we discover the, the not the right path but the dominant path the consensus path that's always been the way that we've worked what this is is a tool for us to be able to do that without having to uh, get that process you know managed through a centralized institution and so as you're absolutely right, we can't figure out which of those systems we're going to use. Though they themselves, I think, will emerge out of this of this fight. Um, I do think that what's going to be interesting is the institutions that sort of, or the the startups, basically the uh, the developers who come up with outside of the box ways to resolve the problem are uh, are going to be the winners. Not necessarily. Uh, I, I don't know that this is a VHS versus Betamax type of story. Everybody t- says that you know. The Bitcoin world will say it has to be Bitcoin maximalism. They're going to win because they've got the biggest amount of hashing power. It has the network effect. There's something obviously very compelling about that concept. But we haven't thought about, the. you know, still Bitcoin is a pipsqueak in terms of the global economy. So who it is that figures out what other sort of magic bullet is placed to tie a lot of these competing chains together, it may well be that the ultimate maximalist solution is not bitcoin but whatever interoperable protocol is created mm-hmm. to tie everything together and i think this is where the guys at consensus are going with their web3 story the idea that actually this is a new generation of the internet and uh, blockchains and dlt and and that model for trust is just one part of it but ipfs and distributed file storage is another and distributed messaging is another and that we move away from it, it uh, jeff garzik over at block has been talking about we went from uh, having our own data centers to having data in the cloud um, and having services running in the cloud. And then the third step, the third generation, is really about moving out of the cloud and really decentralizing. Well, we're already seeing corporates looking at a multi-cloud strategy. How do I make sure that if AWS is down, that I'm on Azure and I'm on Google Cloud? Well, so moving beyond that, then decentralization surely is more cyber resilient and more resilient uh, overall. And and indeed, it was the Andy Haldane at the Bank of England who said, 
said when they looked at DLT, the number one and distributed ledger tech, the number one benefit they saw was actually resilience. It's not an efficiency play. This is really anti-cybersecurity, uh, anti-kind um, of uh, risk and, and centralization risk, which is which is a really interesting point. And when we talk about centralization, the ultimate centralizer is probably um, China. And you, you wrote an interesting piece about um, you know, China's response to blockchain and DLT, especially in recent months, has been somewhat to, to kind of close exchanges to um, outlaw ICOs. One, do you think that's going to continue? And two, uh, where do you think this sits within the context of everything they're trying to achieve? Um, well, I, I, the, to the first question, um, China's pretty good at sort of throwing these sort of Dis- disruptive bombs in a regulatory sense. Just that there's there's, a, there's never any clear signalling that comes there. So they'll do things to sort of throw industries off track. Um, and and they've done this in the past where they you know banned uh, banks from dealing with the exchanges, but they didn't seem to have a problem with this interesting tokenized solution that the, that the BTC exchanges in China came up with to effectively do exactly the same thing. Um, so whether or not they um, are going to find some and, and, and allow some other loophole that now allows ICOs to function and whether there's another way to describe what a Bitcoin exchange is so that you can do that. That's, that's always possible. There's, there's wonderful things you can do with, with, you know, with language to uh, talk yourself out of a corner. But I, I do think that it, the, the second part of the question is the way to think about it because really China, you know, if we, if we think this is about, you know, open, uh, architecture, uh, permissionless systems, right? These are buzzwords in the in the blockchain space. But if you think about it from, you know, again, centralization versus de- decentralization, they're really big uh, challenges for a communist system. They they we are talking about the the sort of the great ideological battle of of history here, uh, and and so and yet what China has been doing since you know uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping decided that you know it, they really had to uh, make it glorious to become rich um, was is to go through this very measured process of opening up. I think that the trajectory China has always been on is this is this exercise of getting toward uh, something that is a, 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 a more open system. But how do you do that when you're, you know, attaching it to the one party state, right? Which is, which is, so, so you've got this, it's almost like the innovator's dilemma within the company as well. It's the same concept. Uh, how do I achieve sufficient innovation and openness and access to all that wonderful creative power and and value creation that the open system allows, but still protect my siloed industry, or in this case, my siloed political party. And that's the fundamental, uh, you know, irresolvable challenge that China faces. So I think what they're doing is they're realizing that there's certain aspects of this, you know, technology that they just can't abide. They really, you know, Bitcoin is was okay to the extent to which they could watch the miners, control the miners. And they could control them, by the way, because they can just figure out exactly where those chips are coming from in Taiwan. And they know where that supply chain is. They can shut it down. At least that aspect of the mining, what, they, what they're what grappling with is like, well, once we get lightning and everything else happening in this untraceable way, what do we do with that? So that becomes a challenge. On the other hand, they really quite like the idea of a blockchain without Bitcoin, a permission system, because they see it as cutting edge technology that they can use as a competitive advantage because at the end of the day they hate the fact that the US is the you know the dollar is the world's hegemon when it comes to currency and that this if they can figure out ways to, to use this technology to bypass the sort of stranglehold that the dollar has on world trade and world asset markets 
that's a whole new competitive advantage for them. So there's this geopolitical play that is part of, I think, their closed permissioned priority with blockchain. But there's this fear of the fully open, you know, uh, uh, globalized, anything goes economy that the US at least used to preach as being its uh, a part of its, its raison d'etre. It makes interesting uh, commentary and also makes a ton of sense to me that there was something you said uh, in one of your CoinDesk pieces where you said it's very hard to uh, innovate by government diktat. Um, there's something about the messy creativity of uh, of, a, of a democracy. There's something about letting many flowers bloom uh, strategy that works really neatly that allows you to kind of embrace whatever disruptive thing comes up and, and just kind of, as you say, find its path and, and uh that Cambrian explosion, that natural evolution that kind of brings that in. Uh, but at the same time, when you look at it um, from a central bank's perspective and you look at their worldview sitting inside a central bank, they're looking very much at sort of how do I solve the problems I've got right now, which is, yeah, moving away from the dollar or, or increasing the cyber resilience I've got or making my currency more dominant. And they look at blockchain and DLT and see an efficiency, shiny new technology. The banks themselves look at blockchain and DLT and see, hey, they're, in, they're pretty much in a cost reduction phase. They're trying to uh, find ways to be more capital efficient. So your worldview and what you want, or as Ian Greg described it, the who are you and what do you want to achieve problem colors your perception of the technology and it's very hard to take a a truly kind of agnostic position in it and see it in its whole because your where you work and what you do tends to color what you think the technology is and therefore you know if you work in a bank it's it's going to help me with um, my middle and back office costs because that's what my problem is if you're in the central bank in china it's going to help your currency become more dominant because that's what you want Uh, but yet it's it's none of those things it is simply a collection of of new ideas that we think we find interesting and that, that what's going to emerge. So so looking into your crystal ball a little bit, what, what does the next six months look like? Are we going to see, because um, I, I see like a, a, a divergence between the, the Japanese, Switzerland, Singapore type of route and the, and the China, South Korea route. Are, are we going to see this barbelling more or, or do we see, because the USA is interestingly kind of in the middle with the SEC and especially the CFTC almost being welcoming, dare I say. Yeah. Um, so, so, well, I think that the barbell might well be the way thing go, things go, but then there'll be like these other, you know, wildcard uh, uh, developments that could throw things in a different direction. I think there will be a digital fiat currency, for example, right? Which is which is not necessarily a digital ledger play, a distributed ledger play. It, it you know, I, I don't know how you build one without some sort of distributed ledger behind it, but it can be a very centralized version of digital of digital currency that comes it. Nonetheless, it is a potential game changer in terms of the global economic story as well. Uh, I don't know for a fact, again, that the signaling out of China is always uh, uh, ambiguous, but I do hear from a number of sources that the PBOC is as far advanced as anybody in this field. Now, I mean, we at MIT are looking at, uh, you know, how to develop a prototype for a digital fiat currency and you know, are working with other central banks on, on collaborating around that. So, you know, there, there's that, and that, that would presumably be an open source, you know, collective open standard model. Uh, and that may win as well. But so there's these battles on that level, which I think is, is, is going to be really, really powerful. I like to 
you know, I'm not really sure if I'm answering your question here, Simon, but I'm going to go on this path anyway because I find it interesting. Um, it, it, what happens, for example, if uh, China and Russia uh, both create their own fiat digital currency and come up with a really smart atomic swap type of smart contract arrangement that allows them, to, their, their importers and their exporters, to trade directly with each other and manage the, the, the risk of conversion, the, the exchange rate risk, all these other things through a smart contract that, that resides on both of their currencies? Well, it means the dollar doesn't need to be at all a part of the invoicing process. It means that, um, you know, the, the dollar, I, I think the dollar's role as the world's reserve currency, uh, it, it's, it's correct to say, of course, that's mainly about asset flows. It's about capital markets and about China putting all of its money in the treasuries market where it's going to sit on this, this reserve. But it's a direct function, I would argue, of the centrality of the dollar to trade. Because the only reason why you want to have a reserve currency is to have it as an insurance strategy so that your importers and exporters aren't going to get beaten around by the collapse in your currency uh, because you need the dollar really badly to triangulate through everything. Nobody trusts. Is that, again, it's a trust problem. It's, it's like the only – the standard that the world has come up with as the trusted mechanism by which they go through this long settlement process for every you know global trade transaction is to – send the money through JP Morgan or the Bank of America or whoever in New York. So the dollar sits in the middle of all of that. If Russia and China figure out how to do it directly with each other and they bypass the dollar, that's a pretty big change. That's a, that, that, that could have some fairly large uh, ripple, domino, earthquakey type uh, effects. Um, and all this other discussion about distributed ledgers and, and you know the Japanese versus Chinese approach – that will all fall into that context as well. I, I really think we are in for some interesting times, uh, and I don't think we can lose sight of the geopolitical aspect of it if we are to want to, to speculate on where everything's going. That's a hugely interesting point. And I think it's interesting to me because uh, we don't often take that aspect on it and, and think about where does the geopolitics play into it. And when you see the stories coming out and Russia is testing a cryptocurrency, PBOC is testing its own cryptocurrency, and the announcement frequency is increasing on both of those. So definitely a, a, an interesting one to watch. Uh, Michael, we've we've run long already. We're up against it on time. Um, just before we before we disappear, where can people find out more about you, more about what it is you're doing at uh, the MIT Digital Currency Initiative and, and anything else? Great. Okay. So uh, my own personal website, michaeljkc.com, uh, has stuff about me, the books I've written. Uh, most importantly, the forthcoming book, The Truth Machine, which is the sequel to The Age of Cryptocurrency. Uh, that's coming out in February uh, 2018. So I encourage your listeners to get a pre-order going. Um, I do public speaking, all that sort of stuff. That's, uh, that's all there as well. Uh, the uh, MIT Digital Currency Initiative, uh, we have a website there as well, dci.mit.media.edu, if I'm not mistaken. But if you Google Digital Currency Initiative, you'll, you'll be able to deal with that. So, yeah, I, that, th those are the two main aspects of what I do. And, of course, go to Coindesk for, uh, for coverage. My weekly column, uh, The Token Economy, it's called. Uh, it's coming out either Wednesdays or Thursdays. Anyway, thanks for having me. Love it, love it. I love a bit of foreshadowing. Thanks for being on Blockchain Insider, my friend. Thrilled to be here. Thanks a lot, mate. Thanks very much for the time there, Michael. A great interview. And uh, then, as I think I mentioned in the news earlier, uh, I spoke to TradeIX. I have the good fortune of being joined by the guy from Trade IX, as I now know it's pronounced. Uh, I'm here with David Sutter. David, nice to have you with us. 
Good to be here. Uh, and Danny Cotty. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you. Gentlemen, David, maybe I'll start with you. Can you just give me a little bit about your background before you came to Trade IX and, and what it is you were doing and, and how you got interested in the subject? Yeah, absolutely. So I um, got into the trade finance space through a very non-traditional means, which was through Bitcoin. Uh-huh. Um, so I became a very big Bitcoin enthusiast as an undergraduate um, at university in the States. And that led me through a series of, of startups to um, where I am now. I've spent the last, uh, well, my entire adult life helping design and implement uh, next generation trade finance platforms and networks utilizing distributed ledger technology or blockchain. Um, so it's pretty amazing. Yep. Uh, and Danny, uh, I think storied career, storied history that you, you've had. Yeah, so I'm an ex-banker, Ooh. career banker. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, over 30 years, worked in uh, large international banks, Citibank, uh, ABN AMRO, RBS, JP Morgan, and run global trade finance businesses and, and, and loan businesses and payments businesses. So we've taken the best of the enthusiasm and the best of the bank knowledge and crushed the exactly. two together. It that, can be in perfect harmony. See, it can be done. I'm a believer in convergence, guys. I'm a believer you can have both. So I'm curious about then uh, how TradeIX came together. What was the, the genesis story? The Genesis story is really uh, our CEO and co-founder, Rob Barnes. Uh, Rob uh, has been already the co-founder of Prime Revenue, one of the most successful supply chain finance platforms that are out there and still operating today. And uh, when he got involved or when he got exposed to blockchain, he got the bug like many others. And, oh, and uh, came to the conclusion together with his former colleagues that there must be a better way of uh, executing trade finance. And that's basically the way it started. And he started putting a team together and we founded uh, Trade IX about a year ago at the end of 2016. Uh, and uh, here we are, up, live, running in the in the public and interviewing with you uh, live and running i like the sound of that in the whole blockchain and dlt space where there's let's face it a lot of white papers flying around at the moment a lot of vaporware a, a lot of vapor white papers as well uh so let's let's talk about the problem that you guys were set up to solve what is the problem in trade finance i'll, I'll just give me a flavor of some of the problems maybe yeah, maybe so David, David, um, you can say that. well trade finance is an eight trillion dollar a year industry it's one of the most economically important sectors of financial services broadly. Um, and despite its importance and size, the financial and IT systems that support the market today are some of the most antiquated, siloed, disconnected, manual paper-based systems we have in, in financial services. So this is every time you buy anything in a supermarket, every time you buy any good, everything you touch probably around you has come through some sort of trade supply chain somewhere. Absolutely. And there's a total lack of interoperability and standards, uh, a a real lack of automation, a real lack of transparency and security uh, in the data that that financial institutions are are making lending decisions based on. Um, And there's a lot of a lot of data silos that that have created a lot of friction and risk in the market and that that leads to a very poor client experience it feels to me like everybody's looking at their feet um you know everybody can see their own little world but they can't see what's going on in the rest of the world and actually if you could you can make a lot better decisions it's almost uh, like look up guys and, and you can see what's happening if i could see uh, how my supplier was doing and how their harvests were going if i was looking to buy fresh goods from them i could probably help them with financing i could probably make decisions about what i can sell and what i can't sell i could make different 
different decisions if I have that data. But why is that interoperability so hard? And, and why, why on earth does DLT begin to solve that? Well, so I think that um, there is two things that's happening right now, why DLT is solving it. One, if you look at the characteristics of trade, um, and you, you have hundreds of thousands of different counterparties, a lot of different assets and data that you need to securely track and make visible to those hundreds of thousands of different counterparties. Um, you have a high need for automation, a high need for digitization. And if you start kind of compiling the characteristics of trade, and then you look to what a distributed ledger does and its characteristics and what it does well, the two align very nicely. So the technology has is, is really also driven an intellectual spark. So it's a good technological fit for the problems that the industry is facing. But m almost more importantly, uh, as you know, that distributed ledger has driven a change in thinking for the large financial institutions and, and big players in, in finance to become more collaborative and more open um, about the financial systems that they're looking to build for the future. So DLT has is, is provided the tools, but also become an intellectual spark to get people together sitting around the, ta the table together and, and, and talking about how they can collaborate and be more open. But couldn't they have had this spark? I mean, Danny, you've been around for a while. You've seen a lot of initiatives in, in trade where people have tried to solve this problem before. What's different now? Because I'm sure there's there's definitely a more desire, as, as, as David says, but is there something else here that's going on, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have started my uh, uh, career life uh, writing on a typewriter, Pre PC time, uh -huh. where the dog and 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 that illustrates uh, the problem that every company, no matter what industry in or what service they provide or what products they uh, are requested either by their regulators or, or by their jurisdictional uh, system to keep their own ledger and create the document. In today's world, every document is issued electronically. Nobody is using typewriters anymore. Nobody is writing, uh, writing handwriting documents. They're all issued electronically, but then they go STP. They go straight to printer <laughs> and, and become a manual document, hand it over to the next party, and then the next party keys it in again, and then again, STP, straight through the printer to hand it on, on to the next party. It's really odd that and, I get a piece of paper, <coughs> then I key it into a digital system so that I can print it again. It just seems like this weird little industry. So there must be a better way to do this, right? There has to be a better way. <laughs> and, and, and this is where DLT comes in, right? To create a distributed ledger accessible to all. But so why couldn't those systems talk to each other? before why couldn't all of those computers that were centralized systems the mainframes what was the problem there security firewalls privacy uh all all aspects that matter you so know, it, was, that it was just hard to do was, was it's that very hard to do different systems different computer languages uh and uh to to create host-to-host -host connectivity is, is a rather complex scenario and I think the distributed ledger gives the opportunity to create an irrefutable source of truth of a transaction that is accessible to everybody. But it requires the legal system around it to, to accept that single ledger as the truth ledger. So at the moment, we are in this interim phase. So we have this technology that uh, really can show us the way for the future, but the technology is not fully deployed yet. So while we write things to the blockchain and use the blockchain as, uh, as a source of truth, companies still have to keep their own records. Mm -hmm. 
So they have to have their own source of truth. And there's also this other source of truth. So we're in this kind of 1.5 version of the world in which you've got to have all of your old infrastructure and all of your own cost. The future's there and you can run that too. But until the uh, legislation and regulation catches up with the technology, you've kind of got to be thinking about, well, actually, how should I be talking to my regulators? How should I be talking to my governments and helping them understand the benefits to the wider economy? And we've seen that in Hong Kong and Singapore and, and, and that whole sector of the world seems to have been quite aggressive. I think you've been involved in some initiatives out that way. Yeah, so the um, the entire trade finance industry, um, as highlighted by uh, Singapore's initiatives there that are government-sponsored for the creation of a national trade platform, as well as in Hong Kong um, and other jurisdictions, the entire trade finance industry is really pouring a lot of time, money, and resources into the deployment of distributed ledger across uh, a variety of different trade finance products, services, and offerings. Because like us, many financial institutions, large corporates, technology providers believe that um, it is really fit for purpose to serve as the new technical backbone for a much more connected, open, inclusive technology infrastructure purpose-built for trade. So so the regulatory discussion, the legal discussion is catching up to where the technology is. But until it does, it's somewhat of a... It, it has not yet and will not realize its full potential. So talk to me about uh, what my experience has been like from, say, like, let's say I was a bank and I used to be... I used to have the buyer on one side, the seller on the other side, or, or another bank with the, the seller on the other side. I was lending into that supply chain. I was providing some liquidity so that people could finance that transaction so that they didn't have, so that they had the working capital so that they could continue to run their operations but they could also uh, have some degree of uh, kind of trust that that transaction would go through with a with a buyer or seller that they'd never met before they were doing all of that in paper they had people checking the paper and keying it in as, as you said Danny what's different now in that process and what are what are the benefits of, of those differences yeah, so what's different now is uh, those processes, The let's take supply chain finance, for example, uh, are entirely siloed and, and specific to the destination application and silo that's serving that supply chain. So let's say you have a buyer and 5,000 suppliers and one bank or one or two banks is providing liquidity and financing that supply chain. That is an entirely siloed uh, program where suppliers that have other buyers and other supply chain finance programs have to use a multitude of different portals to access each different silo. Right. So everybody's looking at everybody else. It's almost you've got this hub and spokes model for each for each actor in that system. I'm looking at different banks or for each supplier, I'm looking at different buyers. For each buyer, I'm looking at different suppliers. Everybody's looking at lots of different people. Everybody's got lots of different portals they need to use. So you've just got the spider's web. Exactly. So suppliers will end up in situations where we're looking at 20, 30. We talked to a company that's using 50 different supply chain finance portals and having to do manual entry on each one of those and manual decision making about complex financial decisions on each one of those. And it becomes an absolute nightmare. Can you imagine having that job of trying to use 50 different portals and 50 different systems? I mean, you can see why people in this industry have been tearing their hair out for some time. Yeah, they're definitely gray haired. <laughs> <laughs> looking at looking at Danny over there. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Danny, so talk to me about where we go next. Like, if if we need to uh, allow the um, regulation and legislation to catch up, what's going to be what drives that, and, and what have you guys been up to specifically? 
Yeah, so uh, I think you need an open infrastructure. Uh, and that's easier said than done. Yeah, what do you mean and by an open infrastructure? Open infrastructure is that it's really shared access to the data. Right. And that's what we are. We are unique in the trade finance space that our platform and uh, with our partnership that we have with R3, leveraging the Corda uh, infrastructure, DLT infrastructure, uh, specifically purpose-built for financial services, uh, gives us that open that open character. So that's one differentiation that we have. The second differentiation is, like I said before, we are live. We have actually done an end-to-end invoice financing and recorded it on the blockchain with a series of uh, counterparties that is in the public's uh, domain. It's a large logistic uh, uh, provider, uh, AIG as a trade credit insurer and Standard Chartered Bank as the funder. And, and we are the platform provider. And then thirdly, we have this unique experience of, uh, uh, of having technology and business expertise and subject matter expertise also on DLT. So these three things together really make, make, make us unique. And uh, the danger that you have at the moment is a lot of these national platforms emerging, a lot of new business network emerging, and they do the same thing as in the past. They replicate silos. They impose their own standards or want to impose their own standards. And instead of company silos, we have no business network or national trade platform silos. So, so one, it's not solving the problem. One professional uh, from uh, Capital Markets once said to me, we will risk recreating the maze. Okay. Um, so we move from having a silo in each company to a silo in each country, which isn't a lot better. It may be a bit better for people in that country and for some trade routes. But then how do we do that? Because there are a lot of uh, open initiatives we had um, the guys from Sweetbridge on a couple of episodes ago, for instance. Um, there are a lot of different answers to to how you do that. What What's your approach for how that platform becomes more open? So from a logistical and operational perspective, it's important to start with a core group of strategic players that have uh, geographic reach. So looking at financial institutions that have very large pre-existing client networks um, in strategic trade zones around the world and, and beginning with them and focusing on the creation of a very solid, robust platform that has clear value propositions for their clients. So you need to get that done first before you can sort of blow the doors open and open up to the entire world. Um, but if you have that solid foundation and you're really providing real client value, you're going to continue to attract more and more strategic players that each one of them represents a network in so, and of so themselves. So you guys are really starting at the top of the market with yes. the big trade routes, with the big suppliers, the big buyers, the big finances uh, and insurers and so on. Because there are initiatives like, for example, Digital Trade Chain and others that are starting at the bottom of the market. Is there a point at which we see those start to converge, do you believe? Um, and this is speculation, I guess, on, on my part. But do you think that uh, the let many flowers bloom thing and that things are going to change in the next few years? Or do you think you know, the thinking is now been done and there, there may be a winner out there yeah no i think absolutely that um, we're going to see these initiatives conser- uh, converge um if we don't then we've just spent a lot of time and money recreating the same problems we set out to solve which is the elimination of data silos and the friction and risk that those cause within trade so you're going to see a variety of different initiatives focused on different market segments different clients different parts of the world different financing products within trade 
uh, ultimately, I, I, having spoken to pretty much all of them, they're all open and understand that this is a serious risk and are willing to address it as their individual business network matures to the point where they're ready to enable connectivity. Which leads me on to my next question. Well, where do you think we're at in the, the timeline and, and what happens next? And, and the second part of that question is, and what are going to be the, the challenges and the hurdles, do you think? We are still at the beginning of this journey. So uh, I, I would say personally that we, we are right in the first quarter of this journey. Uh, in, as these various networks emerge uh, and, and everybody learns more how to, to, to work with the technology and, and how to use it uh, in, 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 in the right fashion. And uh, that's why uh, our partnership with R3, we, we have this... Uh, uh, Marco Polo initiative with 20 leading banks, where on an open uh, infrastructure, we, we, we start with invoice financing, and it's a starting point. Our vision is much, much broader than that. Our vision is to include uh, uh, many more banks. Our vision is to include many corporates, large ones, uh, directly uh, on, on this network. Our vision is to include uh, a lot of shared service providers, that are out there that help executing the the trade finance. So there's lots more to be done over the next years. Do you risk alienating small businesses uh, in, in that process? Or do you think that at some way along the line, there's a way to include them too? Not at all. There is a way to include them totally and, and much easier than they are included at the, at, at the moment. And, and I think what, what we are thinking as well uh, is, is how can we connect these various platforms as they emerge? That's very interesting. Well, so if I was a trade finance professional, or just somebody curious about this subject, where would I go to learn more about you and, and where would I go generally? What would be your top tips? Yeah, so I would. you can start by visiting our website, uh, www.tradeix.com. And there's a news section on there and about section where you can read around and, and uh, see what's going on with our company. For more broadly, um, I'm a big fan of, of just going to Google and typing in uh, what you're looking for. And, and just go search distributed ledger technology, trade finance, blockchain trade finance, and you will find a plethora of information and initiatives out there. And uh, I think it's important for all trade finance practitioners to go do so and, and understand that their industry is, is starting to shift uh, under their feet and, and undergo a, a broad rewiring, as we like to say, of the actual very infrastructure upon which these services and, and products run and are offered. That's a really interesting point. And uh, the let me Google that for you reference is much appreciated. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So a big thank you to Michael and, of course, Danny and David from TradeIX and, of course, my regular co-host, Colin G. Platt. And once again, happy birthday, Colin G. Platt. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and please leave a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Spread the word. Tell all your friends. Tell all your colleagues to listen to. Uh, we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. Are we here? We are here. Here we are.